This event was recorded live at the 2013 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Bob McDevitt, and I'm the programmer for the Dundee Literary Festival, which takes place in the last weekend of October. So if you've not had enough book loveliness uh, from these two weeks in Edinburgh, come and see us uh, in Dundee. Uh, and it's my great pleasure uh, to uh, introduce this event, which is sponsored uh, by The List. So we should say thanks to The List uh, for sponsoring t tonight's event uh, with Tracy Thorne. Uh, can I ask you just now to please turn off any mobile phones or anything else that bleeps or rings or uh, makes annoying noises for the duration of the event? Uh, Tracy Thorne grew up in Hatfield and studied English at the University of Hull. Uh, it was here she met Ben Watt. Uh, while they were both uh, individually signed as solo artists to Cherry Red Records and began a musical partnership as Everything But The Girl, which was to last for 20 years. They released nine albums, um, acquired a, a huge loyal fan base and achieved one massive global, global hit with the song Missing. Uh, after the release of Temperamental, their album in 2000, Tracy stepped away from the music business uh, and concentrated on raising the couple's three children. Um, the last few years have thankfully seen a welcome flurry of activity from Tracy with three solo albums and now uh, a book uh, which obviously being the Edinburgh International Book Festival we are here to talk about uh, this. Bedsit Disco Queen um, is a, a wonderfully warm and witty memoir of all of the above basically it's all about her life uh, in the music business um, and more. Uh, so please uh, give a very warm Edinburgh welcome to Tracy Thorne. Tracy's, uh, we're going to begin the event with uh, Tracy just reading a little bit from the book and then yes. we're going to have a, a bit of a chat, uh, but I will be coming to uh, the audience for questions, so please don't miss uh, this opportunity uh, when we come to you. So take it away. So I'm just going to read a little bit for anyone who hasn't read it or doesn't even remotely know what this book's about, um, picking it random more or less. <laughs> it's a bit from just after everything but the girl had started to be successful and it's me talking a bit about um, some of the strange things that started to happen when success came along. Ever since the release of Eden we had been becoming increasingly well known across Europe and especially in Italy. In March 1985 we went out to do a tour of Italy playing in Bari, Naples, Rome, Bologna, Florence, Milan and Padua and experienced for the first time a taste of genuine pop star treatment. Just before we arrived, my photo appeared on the front page of the newspaper Il Giorno alongside pictures of John McEnroe and the Pope. <laughs> the headline read, Arriva la più bella voce del pop inglese, the most beautiful voice in English pop arrives. <laughs> we were surprised to find ourselves playing in enormous tents apparently perfectly regular venues for concerts in Italy. The sound swirled around inside the cavernous spaces and I found it impossible to hear myself or to sing in tune. Added to this was the fact that the audiences had come hoping to hear Il Jazz Pop Inglese with Brazilian percussionists and a horn section and instead found a very British guitar band. The review in Il Giorno, which I think needs no translation, describes us as sounding come una pub band. 
<laughs> it should have been a disaster, but such was the heat of the moment, all was forgiven, at least until the next time we toured in Italy, when reduced audience numbers revealed that we had in fact done some damage. Expectations had been so high that no one wanted to admit to disappointment, and so we performed in an atmosphere of near hysterical adulation and fled each gig in a bus chased by fans shouting our names and thumping on the sides. On a day off, Ben and I went for a stroll around Florence and found ourselves being pursued by a shouting mob of teenagers whose numbers swelled on each street corner as they picked up passers-by. We sped up, trying to escape, but they kept up with us. It was like the Keystone Cops meets an episode of The Monkeys. Halfway across the Ponte Vecchio, they got close enough that we could hear their voices. Hey, Matt Bianco, Matt Bianco, <laughs> they were shouting. <laughs> this was too much. We stopped in our tracks and wheeled about to face them. With 40 kids bearing down on him, Ben stood his ground and shouted, We are not fucking Matt Bianco. <laughs> Already I was realising that being a pop star, even a minor one, could be a strangely schizophrenic existence veering from ego-boosting episodes of public acclaim and recognition to, well, the exact opposite, in a very short space of time. An element of almost ritualised humiliation seemed to be part of the process, and outside the enclosed and self-referential world of the NME and the indie scene, there were often bizarre and hilarious juxtapositions. We appeared on a Dutch TV show where the other musical guest was Father Abraham and the Smurfs. <laughs> a while later, we were in Rome doing a TV show where our fellow guests were Charles Aznavour and a troupe of Spanish dancers on stilts. <laughs> I began to think it was going to take some effort to maintain a normal sense of self-esteem, neither unhealthily high nor too low. Since I'd left Hull a year ago, my life had changed enormously and what had been a small-scale, part-time endeavour was now very definitely a career. I had learned about the schedules involved in making records, that singles were supposed to be released four weeks before the album, for instance, as a kind of fanfare. This was news to me. It hadn't happened like that at the indie level. There were videos to be made too, and they, like singles, were supposed to be promotional tools rather than interesting works of art. We made our first three, for each and every one, mine and native land, with the director John Maybury, who came from an art film background and would go on to work with Derek Jarman and direct the biopic of Francis Bacon, Love is the Devil. Each and every one is a simple black and white film of us playing the song, but I was unused to having a camera in my face all day and chose to ignore it, staring fervently at the floor for the duration of the song. The video for mine, was filmed in a stupefyingly hot studio where my makeup melted and had to be reapplied throughout the day till by the evening it was inches thick on my face and made me look like Jackie Stallone. <laughs> then a bright light shining from behind me made my ears go red and translucent on film, so I had to have thick gaffer tape plastered over the backs of them. Yes, I did feel very glamorous, thank you for asking. <laughs> By the time we came to make the video for the first single from Love Not Money, called When All's Well, it was suggested that we consider working with someone who actually made pop videos for a living. Tim Pope was chosen, who'd had great success with his witty and wacky videos for The Cure. The lyric to the song goes, 
when all's well, my love is like cathedral bells. And so here's what his idea for the video was. Tracy will be performing the song inside an enormous cross-section of an upturned bell, while Ben will be down a well. <laughs> yes, I know. But the idea went down a storm in the record company offices, and at great expense, a film set was duly constructed with the bell and the well as required. What could we do but turn up and obey instructions? If in the finished version, we look a little uncertain as to what on earth we're doing, I ask you to search your conscience and tell me if you could have done any better. <laughs> thanks. Uh, thanks very much, Chrissy. Um, well, first of all, thank you for the book. Um, you made a, a, a middle-aged music fan like myself very happy with lots of... Uh, it, it's one of these books that... It, I must be just about the right age because I sort of remembered everything that you spoke about in the times and the bands and the politics. It was a real, sort of, a, a real tonic. I, I zipped through it and loved it. But I wonder if you'd maybe like to start just with a little bit about the genesis of the book and why now, why you chose to write a book at all and why mm. you publish it now. And well, I started writing it years ago, back in, I don't know, 2006 or something. Um, and it was right in the period when I hadn't done any music for ages. I'd been at home with small kids. And when people would say to me, what are you doing now? I was starting to say, in all seriousness, I've retired. And then I began to think, well, hang on, you're a bit young to have retired. Um, and then I began to think, you know, people are asking me about this career and why I've dropped it. And I'm being a bit casual and offhand in my answers. And maybe I ought to actually think about what I'm doing and why. And I thought a good starting point would be to look back on what I'd done and um, remind myself. So I started trawling through my diaries and press cuttings and stuff. And I think initially I started writing it all down, almost as a letter to myself, just saying, look, you did all this, you know, maybe it was important to you and maybe um, there was a reason for it all. And I got to a certain point where I'd written what wasn't really a book, but which was almost like a long story that told the events, just one after the other. And what that did was trigger in me the memory of you know, who I'd been, who this person was who'd done all this. And it, it, it got me back into music. But it was more for yourself, it wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't book thinking I was writing a book. No. And then I went back, I made two solo albums. And there's a point when I was actually doing an interview with Dorian Linsky from The Guardian, only about three years ago. And he says to me something like, have you ever thought of writing a book? And I said, well, I did write one, but it's rubbish. Never going to come out. It's not really a book. Um, and that's what I thought of it at the time. You know, I wasn't taking it seriously. Then we moved house, and I found in a box all this stuff I'd printed out. Um, and I read it all through and thought, you know what, it could be a book, actually. Mm. It's about 60 70% finished. And at that point, because it's quite an interesting structure, because as you say, you know, the, the, there are diary entries. You yeah. use um, every chapter has some lyrics um, from songs. Not Interestingly, not songs from the time that you're describing, but songs that sort of thematically fit the chapter rather yeah. than so it, I thought that was quite interesting but also you, you've obviously kept loads of ticket stubs mm. and posters it's a real kind of treasure I had lots stuff. of yeah. raw material yeah um, so how, what was the process like of fashioning all that into a, a, a book well I just thought the more um, personal it was the better when I began to when I came to the conclusion that it could be a book and I should finish it then I thought well I don't the last thing I want it to be is the authorized biography of everything but the girl because I thought someone else could probably write that better I'm not the person I'm not good at cataloging all the b-sides and you know it's just it's a bit boring 
Um, but I thought, you know, what I can do is actually give you my version of what it felt like from standing right here. And I've got all this stuff. I've got these ticket stubs and I've got my teenage diaries, which when I came to read them, you know, slightly... Um, they, they give, give yourself away your diaries, don't they? Because you can't lie. You, 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 know, you write your diary just for yourself. You're not writing any kind of glossed-up, manufactured version of yourself. It's just the honest truth. So sometimes in interviews over the years, I'd been asked, you know, how did you start in music? And I always told this story, oh, it was punk that got me started. And I, by the end of it, I'm making it sound like I'm down at the vortex, you know, <laughs> in the front row, in front of the clash, you know, at their first gig. And then I get my diary out, and, you know, in 1966, 76, 66. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very old. <laughs> 1976, I'm buying the best of the Eagles. So I thought... You know, I thought this is quite funny, actually. The best way to write this book would just be to use this kind of stuff to tell an honest account of what it's like being in but a band. I, I really liked that Tracy's voice. Yeah. Because there's quite a lot of quite a lot of the diary, <laughs> and you're a really a, a really great presence in the book. This this you know whatever age you are, because obviously you age as the diaries yes. go on. But I, I really liked the perspective of going from you telling the story yes. of the book but going back to actually what it felt like and yeah. what it was like to be that girl. Well, it remind, I think while I was writing it, it reminded me. And some of the time, you know, one of the things that, about writing the book that got me back into doing music was I actually felt quite proud of the person who'd started out. Yeah. When I read my diary entries about going off to buy an electric guitar without even knowing that you needed an amp and a lead and all that stuff and how, <laughs> kind of how completely naive and hopeless I was, and yet something made me think, I could do this. I could buy an electric guitar and join a band. You know, where did that come from? Um, and I sort of admired that person and thought, well, if I stop doing music completely, I'm letting her down. So I think I felt I owed it to my younger self to I carry feel, on. Um, I feel that's quite a good point to ask you about your first audition, uh, yeah. which is a great story in the book. Um, and you say about this is the first time Tracy auditions for, uh, to be in a band, a band of boys. Yeah, well, I was already in the band, to be fair. I was second guitarist. All oh, right. Um, I just to be the singer. Yeah, and then, then they said to me one day, can you sing? Yeah. Um, and I just, well, I don't know. You know, I was only sung in the choir at school, um, doing Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. But you, you say that you wanted to be heard without being heard, but more specifically without being seen. Yeah. And you well, addressed this in quite an interesting manner. Yes, yeah, well, I said to them, look, I, I'll have a go, because I was... You know, as always in these things, I was ambivalent. There was part of me that immediately thought, could I be the singer? That might be great. But then immediately a sense of fear kicked in and I thought, I said to them, well, I can't do it if you're looking at me. Um, so luckily we were in someone's bedroom. So I said, well, look, I'll get inside the wardrobe. <laughs> like, obviously, because that's what you do. Um, and they sort of went, okay. <laughs> so I did, I got inside um, my boyfriend Aid's wardrobe and shut both the doors and took the mic in with me, so the lead must have been somewhere <laughs> under the door, Jamming and button. sang Rebel Rebel from inside the wardrobe in my best Susie Sue impersonation voice. <laughs> it has to be one of the great um, rock and roll uh, uh, anecdotes of The thing time. is, I, I remembered this story, and I told it to friends down the years, and they'd all kind of laughed, like, yeah, right. And then I began to think, maybe I'm making this up. I, don't, I mean, it sounds so stupid, maybe it's not true. And when I was writing the book, I got back in touch with a couple of the boys in the band and said, did I really do that? Did I really get in the, the wardrobe? Yeah, we've been telling people that for years. Tracy Thorne in my wardrobe. I, th I thought. <laughs> so it was true. I thought it was a really interesting story because it, it does 
in some ways sum up your sort of feeling about live yeah, performance? Yeah, it does. I've most of my career, the, honestly, I would, have, part, I would have stayed inside the wardrobe if I yeah. could have done. I, I thought about calling the book, you know, there's something, there's something in the wardrobe because I thought <laughs> there's sort of a title. I couldn't quite make it work, but there's, there's, it seemed you know, quite key. You have some pretty awful moments of, you know, throwing up before games. Yeah, and, no, you know, the whole stage fright business was, you know, something that it did plague me and it was one of the things that contributed to me stopping to the extent I did you know I was actually in some ways quite grateful to be able to stop because if nothing else it just took that out of my life at mm. least which had been a problem did you did you make your peace with it and think well you know I'm a songwriter and I obviously I want these songs to be heard yeah. and so this is I've just got to do this I've I did I forced myself to and I think you know through sheer habit um, you know, we toured a lot, and I just think I got used to doing it. Um, but I also think I got used to living in a state of stress and anxiety and thinking that that was normal. And it wasn't really until I stopped that I suddenly thought, oh, isn't it nice not to feel like that? You, um, you spend a bit of time in the book um, talking about the Marine Girls uh, hmm. days. And what, what I loved about that chapter was it's, it's the, you were the very definition of a, a DIY, homegrown you know, quite literally producing things and you know, yeah. mailing them out. Um, I wonder if you'd just like to say a little bit about that time and also the fact that they came to a rather unpleasant end in Scotland. Yeah, well, yeah, that's unfortunate. We were, we were incredibly innocent. You know, it's, when I think back to the Marine Girls, you know, when I was writing the book, I thought, I do have to write a slight corrective to what the Marine Girls have become because, you know, they've become slightly mythologised as a sort of you know, early example of all-girl indie band. And it makes us sound like we were something, I don't know, much more progressive than we actually were. We were just a bunch of schoolgirls um, making it up as we went along. And there was so much we didn't know. Um, but on the other hand, we did have this incredible spirit and determination just to get on and, and do things, even though we didn't know what we were doing. And, and the nature of the business at that point was that you could achieve a certain degree of success yes. you were being well we made we recorded a cassette yeah. in my bedroom which was essentially our first album and started selling it ourselves through the local record shop and then put a little ad in the back of the I've still got the little cut out ad and it says send a postal order <laughs> to my you know, Tracy Thorne at six Peplin's way you know and that was it and I would just then post them off and send them to people you did acquire and then John Peel played it so yeah, then so that, I mean, that's that, it then you're off and running so you know on, on, on one hand you, you, you do have this completely you know uh, it, it is quite small time and small scale but mm. then you know you're being reviewed in the NME and you're yeah. being played on John Peel you acquired a rather famous fan Mr Cobain oh Kurt Cobain well yeah. it's, although of course we didn't know that a lot later no, yeah but that's quite extraordinary that yes it is he, he came across us through an old friend of ours who'd gone on start up the label Sub Pop and ended up signing Novana and was the person who played Kurt, people like the Raincoats and a lot of that sort of yeah, indie yeah. stuff that he then got into. Um, and Courtney Love told me at some point later on um, that they'd been into us and I kind of took it with a pinch of salt thinking, yeah, you know, this is one of her stories. Yeah, and then his journals sense. came out, you know, and he was a great list maker and there is on one page, there's his list of, you know, the greatest albums ever made and it kind of goes, you know, at number nine, Public Enemy. And number 10, the Marine Girl. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I mean, that's just... That it's bizarre. Be, that may, Absolutely I mean, bizarre. That, amazing. And again, to think that it's come from, you know... From uh, my bedroom. Uh, <laughs> um, I wonder if I can ask you uh, uh, a similar question, but in reverse. Um, you write about uh, a certain uh, Stephen Patrick Morrissey in yes. the book. 
Um, and you have a, a, a real, you know, you're obviously a, a real fan of his. Mm. And what I thought was interesting about the way you wrote about Morrissey was that you write about him exactly the way I remember friends of mine being about Morrissey. And I'm talking about mostly straight men here. Yeah. But they had this sort of love that they couldn't quite get find a label for. And it wasn't, it I think wasn't I could give you a label. You might not like it. I think, it, I think some people might be that. But it wasn't, it wasn't quite that. It was, I, mean, no, no, I, okay. I remember seeing them. Um, you insist. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, uh, I, I, saw, I saw them at, at the Barrowlands of the Queen's Dead Tour 1985 and it was the hottest I've ever been. And there was just this incredible sort of love. <laughs> <laughs> at a gig. My goodness. Um, so I just wondered. Um, uh, <laughs> I've lost, lost my way. He's all in a tizzy now. What is it? What is it about Mr. Morrissey? You think that inspires that sort of love? Because obviously you felt it as well. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. very hard to actually um, pin it down. All I did in, when I wrote about it in the book was I tried to describe what it was like being at those early gigs. I think anyone who was there understands, and so people of the right age read it and went, oh my God, I was there too, I remember. But it is difficult to convey that to a different generation. I do think every generation has their band or their performer who's just particularly great and who you see at the right moment, and so they sink in with you. For people who are a few years younger than me, it's, it's the Stone Roses. And I don't quite get that. I missed that moment. I was a bit yeah. too old already. But, you know, the Stone Roses have that incredible effect on people of that certain age. For our age, it's the Smiths. And if you happen to be at those gigs, you know, they were just euphoric occasions. There was also something for me, having come out of the punk and post-punk gigs, that the Smiths were the first gigs I went to that were as exciting but weren't violent. Mm. And that was extraordinary. You know, you'd go to a gig and it would be really, really exciting, but you wouldn't get beaten up. No. And I thought that was quite good. Quite, yeah. quite, and quite the reverse, literate that. and yeah. poetic. Yeah, and yeah. He, that, that, that's People what I thought was funny. People waving flowers he, around. You know, he did appeal to blokes who would go on to, you know, I guess the same guys who'd go and see Oasis or something. Yeah. Like, but that, yeah, and yet they found in... Might, uh, is some, something that's always interested me. Um, one of the things about the book... I'm just going to move quickly. But, uh, <laughs> Come to terms with that. I think a lot of men of this age I, you haven't I, quite come to terms with how they feel. I, no, I, I, I completely is fine. put my hands up. I, I was in, in love, absolutely really in love with him. Really <laughs> in love with him. Um, that's why, but that's why he was good. I would say yeah. because he did have that effect on all his audience. You know, if you can do that as a performer, if you can make all your audience basically a bit in love with you, then you've done it. Yeah. One. Um, one of the things the book did for me was made me go back to a lot of old music. So a lot, mm. I, I started off listening to your music, things that I hadn't listened to for a while. But also there was other things that you mentioned that I kept thinking, oh, oh yeah, I forgot about that. And yeah. So I, I and the, you know, it's the beauty of the way we all listen to music now and download stuff. It's very easy to just kind of go back even things that you had forgotten. Um, but you talk about the kind of naff 80s and you, you, you are often seen as an 80s band and talked about as an 80s band but yeah. then you're not part of this horrendous kind of here and now um, tours and I wonder if you'd like to say something about what, why you think it is the 80s has been remembered as the, the, the decade of, of Tapau and the flock of seagulls <laughs> and not of you know, the high school works and Lloyd Cole and the commotions and you, and there, was, there were a lot of great bands, you know. But there was a mainstream 80s, wasn't there? And then there was a slightly off to the side 80s and we were part of that, I felt. I mean, I never felt part of the mainstream at the time while it was happening. You know, we weren't invited to do Band-Aid. We weren't at that kind of level. Um, 
we were very occasionally in smash hits, but not really. I mean, it was Kajagoogoo and Duran yeah, Duran in smash hits. We weren't really that kind of band. But when the story of the 80s gets told, it's often the sort of pop version of yeah. the 80s. And the alternative version, which was people like us and the bloody Redskins, <laughs> you know, moaning about Thatcher. Yeah. I do think got, it does tend to get a bit written out of history. Billy Bragg, you know, is still there, obviously, and gets remembered. But, you know, the political side of the 80s, sometimes I felt had got forgotten and overlooked. And yeah. the idea that everyone was a yuppie and, you know, the girls were all just wearing puffball skirts and I wore a puffball skirt. I was wearing dungarees. You know. We may uh, we may come back to the the political uh, stuff. That's a, a really good chapter. But I'd like to talk just a little bit about Hull University mm. and obviously um, when you met Ben and you know this kind of because he'd seen a gig before, hadn't he? He'd seen you. Ben play, had been to see the Marine yeah, Girls. Yes. And um, was aware of you, and you were aware yeah, of each other. But we were. Met. But it was a very odd set of coincidences really you know to be on the same label and we sort of knew of each other but had never met and then to be going to the same university and then we were put in the student houses three doors away from each other so we were sort of fated to meet mm. and then you know out of the whole place it did feel like Ben was the only person I had anything in common with anyway um, I, th I thought the detail around that time was was, was really great a, a, a couple of things I want to ask you um, you talk about on the first day when I think you eventually go to Ben's room and he's already decorated it all in his yeah. room, you know, he's completely changed, yours is just an empty student and it was, it's a small thing but I really remember in the first week of term at uni going to different people's rooms and mm. seeing the sort of effort that people put into yeah. decorating their rooms. So ben had transformed his, I mean the most startling thing was that his desk, you know, which you might think was important when you're a student, he just shoved it on top of the wardrobe. I mean, <laughs> clearly just saying, oh I'm not going to need this, am I? <laughs> first day at university, desk out the way and in, he had this huge trunk and then a um, record player on there and then speakers like this big I'd never seen speakers that big in someone's bedroom um, and, um, so I just thought he's quite into music then isn't he <laughs> and once once you sort of join forces and start to uh, gig and release records as everything but the girl used to become you know a, a, a proper band as it were you then have this kind of run of journalists coming up from London to yes. Hull. I, I, I loved all that. I wonder if you'd like, like to say a little bit about Well, I, I, I started reading these interviews and I'd sort of forgotten it all. There was a little run of them all and there was about five in succession and they were all exactly the same interview. They all just started out by talking about the meter running out and the gas fire going out. Um, and I just thought, I think we must have done that deliberately, you know. I can't <laughs> believe that happened accidentally every time we did an interview. So we must have slightly set up this kind of we're what? poor students. Did you talk about and stuff like that? And we did like refuse did to go down to London, I think. We, well, I we made ask, a big stand that I, they had I, I to almost, come to if us. I, if I had a bit more guts, I was going to start the interview tonight by saying, so Tracy, even when you had a third, top 30 hit, why did you not do that? Did you say at one point that every interview you do, people say, even with the top 30 yeah. hit, why have you not done Top of the Pops? Yes. It, for a while, it was this story that we wouldn't do it. Well, we, that we didn't we refused to do it because we were sitting our exams. Um, and I think I'd heard that story so many times, I kind of thought, oh, that's probably true, isn't it? And then I talked to Ben about it, and I talked to the record company about it a bit, and I said, what was the actual story? And we all reminded ourselves that actually we'd never been offered it. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was no phone call that we said, no, we're not going on. But to be fair, we had said to um, Blanco and Negro, 
you know, we don't like Top of the Pots, we probably wouldn't. I don't think we'd ever actually come out and said we wouldn't do it if we were offered it. We just kind of moaned about it and disapproved of it. It's a much cooler um, story, though. Which is so, fine. And then, we, then, then we didn't get offered it. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, if we talk about your Devon to the Girl career, you, you say at one point, um, you think about most sort of bands or most uh, music artists' career, they have this graph, they have a sort of, you know, mm. and it's usually a kind of astonishing debut album, yeah. then often a kind of consolidated second album yep. because you've got a fan base then, then a difficult third album which can yeah. sometimes go, you know, either way. Goes either and, way. And then it's usually a kind of fairly yes. natural yeah, slide it into, off, into it? obscurity. Yeah. Um, it's right and proper way for it to be. Everything but the girl. <laughs> not it like didn't that. really go like that. No. Um, but at the point when, ironically, Ben got ill, I think that was the point where things were tailing off. And we both of us still wonder, <clears throat> you know, if he hadn't got ill and everything that happened subsequent to that happened slightly as a result of his illness, if that hadn't happened, both of us wonder whether we might have just tailed off, that we were sort of running out of steam, we were running out of inspiration, we'd lost our way a bit, you know, we were in that classic state of not following our own instincts as much as we had at the beginning and, you know, taking advice from other people. Um, and, you know, who knows? Maybe we would have called it a day at that point. But then, you know, Ben got sick and nearly died. Um, and in the year after that, both of us had that sort of... It sounds like such a cliché, but that real, you know, wake-up call feeling of what are you doing with your life? You're, you're wasting time, you know, you don't know how long you've got only do stuff that you really care about. Mm. You know, it was, yeah, yeah. it was just really obvious stuff in the I wake mean, of it that teed us up again. If I'm honest, I, I, I was always a fan of the band and I think I, I would completely agree with that because I think by Worldwide, by that album. Yeah. I think that was, that was the first album of yours that I bought and didn't really like. And, and, and I would and totally I, I, agree with you. I, I, I mean... I, 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 remember, <laughs> I, remember, I remember being disappointed, but also I think I, think I thought, well, you know, I've had a lot of good albums out yeah, of this band. that's plenty. And, you know, Maybe, maybe that's there it. There are some people, of course, who, who really like that record and have been a bit cross with me <laughs> about writing in the book that, <clears throat> you know, that's our low point. Because I've had lots of people say, well, that's my favourite. How can you say people that's your low point? <laughs> that's fine. It's just that's this is my version of events. But, but then, you know, you, you say in the book, luckily Ben got... Yeah, <laughs> luckily, luckily Ben nearly yeah. died. But I, and Amplified Heart came out and, and I remember, us. you know, it was like having a, an old friend back again. Yeah. Like, oh, there they are, you know, they're, 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 they are, so, I mean, it really did Well, work. you know, it was on two things. It, on one level, it was just, as I said just now, just that kind of impetus to concentrate on doing work for the right reasons, I suppose, reminding yourself that, you know, life is short, nothing's a given, you don't know what's around the corner, all yeah. those sorts of very obvious things. But that actually free you up a bit and make you think, well, you know, what is it we're chasing? We're chasing something intangible. We're not really achieving it anyway, because it's not like we're having hit singles. We're following people's advice, but it's not really working anyway. So let's return to the original reason for doing it. Plus, the second thing is, it gave us some things to write about, because the aftermath of Ben's illness you know, both of us had a, been through an enormously emotional experience. We were both feeling, you know, very churned up um, and questioning lots of things. And that was inspiring in terms of writing lyrics again. So it was it, a positive thing. You know, you know when, uh, when you're single or single people say this, you know, that you, you'll never fall in love if you're looking for it. And as soon as you stop looking for it, yeah. it finds you. It seemed, it seemed like that. It seemed like when you 
thought, oh, you know what, I don't care about all yeah. of this. This, you know, then this kind of... Well, again, it's like a corny movie, isn't and it? You know, we stopped trying to have a hit. And, then and although, hit. although you had enjoyed, you know, periods of success and some, you know, some of the albums had sold very well and you'd, as I said in my introduction, you know, you had a, a very large and loyal fan base, you'd really had these, you really had these two kind of big hits. You had the, the skinny bird with the Rod Stewart Rod number. Stewart number, lovely, yeah. <laughs> and so I don't want to talk about it, which was a huge kind of hit in UK and Europe. But then missing, obviously, which completely transformed your career. So I wonder if, if you'd just like to compare those two hit singles mm. and just say a little bit about where you were at each time and how ready you were for the. They were very different experiences. I mean, the, I don't want to talk about it. it was a sort of, again, a, a hit single a bit by accident. It was just a track we were doing live. You know, I think if we, if we recorded that track as a B side, like we did lots of covers as B-sides, yeah. there's lots of them littered throughout our career, it would have just taken its place alongside various other songs we'd done. Um, but suddenly at that moment, someone at the record company said, well, why don't you actually put this one out as a single? And that was the first time I think we listened to other people and went, well, okay, I suppose we could. We hadn't really thought of that, but yeah, I suppose we could do that. Um, not really with any idea of what that might mean. And strangely when it did become a hit we learnt a lesson from it which was that we got a bigger audience but we didn't just get more of the same kind of audience we got a very different kind of audience so we had our original audience who were people mostly our age who perhaps been students around the same time as us been into indie music around the same time as us you know liked the other kind of bands we liked and and that was our original audience and it was this big and then suddenly we had an audience that was this big but they were people who perhaps never heard of us before didn't even know where we'd come from had never heard of orange juice do you know what I mean all these sorts of yeah. just different people and that was fine but then I think it made us feel that we were a bit torn in terms of which audience did we have a responsibility towards when we went out and did gigs who were we playing to were we playing to the original people or you know, should we be catering to these new people who've come along, who've got every right to be there? They've bought a ticket as well, yeah. and, and they but like this one. But they might want something different. They might want more covers. They might... Who knows yeah, what, though? Yeah, I don't yeah. even quite know. So, so there was that. There was that awkwardness and, and, you know, feeling that there was a little bit of snide comments that, you know, oh, they've become a bit middle of the road now. You know, they used to be an indie band, a bit political, but now they've done a cover. So there was that. It left us with that awkwardness. Um, Whereas Missing was, it was really different. I mean, even the way it became a hit was different. You know, it became a hit so much against the grain of anything to do with marketing and sort of record companies trying to foist a record onto people. Yeah. You know, it had come out. It's a genuine word of Yeah, life. we had this mix people done just, just for it, clubs. Yeah. And we all liked it. Everyone thought, it's a great mix. You know, we've got a few mixes out there. And that, the Todd Terry one was just another mix to take its place alongside. And then gradually we started hearing these rumours that, you know, it's really taking off in clubs in Miami and then it's really taking off in clubs in Italy and then we started to see it in club charts. Um, and it was almost like the record just did it itself. It felt like, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd written this song and recorded it and then someone else had added a bit of production sparkle to it and then it had just gone out there and, I don't know, people just took it and ran with it. And I think we really enjoyed that because we just sat and watched yeah. it happen without, yeah. you know, feeling at that point that we were doing anything to force it to happen. But 
especially at that point in your career. Especially because, at that point, because yeah. Not when we'd only, given up all hope. <laughs> well, you'd been dropped, hadn't you? You'd, we had been dropped. We'd been dropped by WEA, who still owned the rights to the single. So when it became obvious that it was going to be a pop hit, they were the ones who had to re-release it, which for them was, you know, I don't know, really mixed blessing because they're doing all the work to put the single out. Okay, they earned the money from the single itself, mm. but they knew that whatever album we then recorded to follow it up, they wouldn't have because they'd just dropped us. So it made them look silly. Mm. Um, felt so sorry for them. <laughs> <laughs> that comes across in the book. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it, I handled it very politely. <laughs> but but it, begins, it begins possibly the most sustained period of success. Yeah, well then we had a period where, have, we, you know, that, that period afterwards, so from Missing through the Walking Wounded album was the period when we most really experienced what it felt like to be a successful pop group, where, where it was working on all levels. You know, we were getting good reviews, and we were selling records, and we were touring and selling out gigs, and it all worked. Um, and then at the end of that, I stopped, because I sort of <laughs> felt, I kind of felt, I've done it now, that was it, that was great. I really didn't have that feeling that as a proper pop star, you're supposed to have, which is, right, we've, re we've made it to this point now. You know, the next goal is to get that much bigger, and there's always further, you know, someone like Madonna, you know, you never reach the end, do you? Madonna must never reach the point of thinking, I'm probably successful enough now. No. You know, I could probably relax a bit. You know, maybe let a wrinkle appear or whatever. Who knows? <laughs> Just let it go a bit. But Some no. might say maybe she ought. <laughs> <laughs> maybe she ought to stop. Well, um, you know, that's proper, that's proper ambition. That's proper pop star ambition. And I don't have that and, at all. Uh, uh, and as I, as I said, I know you're being, you're being glow about it, saying, you know, fortunately Ben contracted this disease and that but I'd just like to talk a little bit about that. Um, obviously, Ben wrote about his, um, his illness in a, 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 a book Patient, yeah. um, which I was sent to Tracy earlier when he came to Edinburgh, which I think it must be 16 years ago. Oh, it's yeah. terrifying to think. And uh, when I, I worked in Waterstones at the time and did a, a very similar sort of chat about his book. Um, so I wonder um, if you'd just like to say just a little bit about that time, because it, it, it's incredibly moving in the book. It's incredibly... Um, frightening. I, I read mm. Edwin Collins' book um, by his wife last yes, year. Yes, so did I. And it remind, yes. parts of it reminded me of the, how I felt about that book. Yes. Especially the hospitals and the visits and the I read the Grace's book before and, yeah. I wrote my bit and it actually did make me think, it, it, it sort of freed me up a bit to think, yes, it is okay to talk about it because mm. I'm, you know, I'm a bit of a reserved person <laughs> and I did have an anxiety about, you know, I know Ben's told his side of the story but I still thought... I don't know, maybe it's not cool to go there. But I read Grace's book and I liked it so much and I thought, no, it's, you know, it's all interesting stuff. We all mm -hmm. end up going through these things. And actually, when you read other people's stories, it just connects you to them and you sympathise and you realise how much we all share. It doesn't matter how successful anyone is or whatever. You can all be laid low by the same things. Yeah. Um, and the other thing when I was writing the book was I thought telling the story of Ben's illness gave me the opportunity to do the personal stuff and talk about our yeah. relationship. Because up to that point in the book, I don't talk about it at all, really. I, I'm a bit glib, and I tell a few jokes about how we started going out with each other, and that yeah. was deliberate. I thought, I don't want to do a soppy love story. I don't yeah. want to talk about how we got together. I don't want to talk about what it was like through the years being a couple, because, you know, I did used to get sick of being asked those questions, and I didn't want to stray into that territory. But then I thought, I'll just do one chapter in the middle where I talk about Ben's illness and I'll put it all in there. So it was, yeah. it was a deliberate choice. I thought I'll just use that moment 
to say, look, okay, you might have thought this and you might have read that and I know that sometimes we said this and we joked about being a couple and we were always a bit shy about it, but yeah. you know, the honest truth of it was we were an incredibly close, devoted couple who'd been together a long time and he nearly died. So how do you think it felt? Yeah. Because it, I did get asked a lot of times, how did he feel? It, it was interesting that time, because again, I think having followed the band through the years, I think I didn't know if you were a couple or not. And I no. think it's one of those questions people ask you, people say, are they actually a couple or are they like, you yeah. know? And you'd, but we were a bit funny about it yeah. because we didn't always know how to handle it and you know we didn't i don't know i don't think um journalists always know how to handle it either we did a terrible interview once with nicky campbell on the radio um and he frightened the life out of me because he suddenly looked at me and he said do you think when people listen to your music they imagine you making laughs <laughs>, <laughs> Score that, that question was, off. That was the point. Yeah. <laughs> that was the point when I thought I am never going to talk about our relationship in public Great. ever. Um, on that, so. <laughs> I think we'll bring in the uh, bring in the Can we? Uh, can I have a quick show of hands Ooh, to see if there's up. questions in the audience? We've got our microphone, so if you could wait uh, for the microphone to come to you, so we can all hear. Are there any questions? Come on, must be. Yeah. Oh God, it's only one. Only one. There must be more than one. Oh, no. There'll be more than one. They're just shy. They're very shy. Hello. Um, Hello. First of all, I just want to say thank you because you've been a massively important part of my uh, music love. I've, I've admired you for years. And I met you once thank in Hampstead and came running up to you and said I liked you and you were very, very lovely to me. So thank you. Thank <laughs> <laughs> God, she got me on a good day. <laughs> That's the embarrassing part. My question is, if you had to pick, it's probably a really stupid and hard question to answer, but if you had to pick one song that you were most mm. proud of on a personal level what would it be and i don't obviously missing was fantastic it wouldn't be missing in all honesty um you know missing is one of those songs that it's almost been taken out of my hands now i don't feel very personally attached to missing anymore i i kind of feel about it how probably a lot of other people feel which is i think it's a great track and when i hear it, i go that's really good um, but it doesn't feel like mine anymore it's, it, it is really impossible to pick one. I guess um, the songs that you pick for the book, are, are, they, are these just lyrics that you like or are they so, are They, they are like, ones oh, I'm proud of. I mean, yeah. the, the reason for choosing the lyrics was also um, a bit of a feeling that I wanted to make the point that I've always been a writer mm. because, you know, I do often get talked about as a singer. Um, and I know I'm not alone among women singers as well of slight resenting it not always been acknowledged that we're writers as well. Um, you know, I think sometimes with collaborations I've done with people like Massive Attack, people imagine that perhaps I was just brought in as the mm. sort of decorative voice on the top, whereas I wrote the whole track, you know, came up with the title of their album, <laughs> you know, actually did quite a lot of yeah, the creative yeah. stuff. But sometimes as, as the girl singer, you, your role is sort of put in a box and described as this. So that was one of the reasons for putting the lyrics in. Um, Fascination is a song that I'm really proud of. Oh. <laughs> you two worked that There you go. <laughs> you know, the next, we chop them with the next one we take. <laughs> yeah, be there. Uh, uh, anyone else? <laughs> Gentlemen, they are in the middle of the rope. Uh, what's wrong with the best of the Eagles? <laughs> nothing. <laughs> it's a really good question. Absolutely nothing. I do actually say that in the book, to be fair, that I'm, I make a list of the records I bought in 1976, none of which are cool 
1976 records to have bought. But on the other hand, I still like all of them. I really like the Eagles. <laughs> I'll put my hand up and own up to it. Anyone else? <laughs> Um, I was just wondering, the, you t the book takes you up to about 1997, 98, and I was wondering if there's going to be a follow-up. It does go a bit further than that. I mean, it sort of stops at that point, and then I write a couple of shortest chapters where I just fill in on the fact that I did go back to music and start recording. I mean, some people have said, are you going to do a follow-up? But I thought, well, this covers about 30 years of my life, <laughs> and there's only been about four since it ends. Um, so I, I don't think I've got enough material was, actually to do the same I was quite, thing I was going to ask you about, um, because Ben published his book first and then you yes. it, and I saw Ben's done another deal. Ben's got a book coming book out coming in January, out yeah, so it's his so turn now. So I wondered, but do you uh, show each other the books in early draft? Do they, did um, you see this yes, at all? Yes, I showed Ben some of this very early on. Um, and I did feel a bit, you know, there was a point when I was writing it where I realised the early part of the book was all, I did this, I did that, I made this decision. And then there came a point when it was me and Ben together, and a lot of it went into the we. It started to be, we decided to do this, we did that. And he actually said to me, you ought to change it back to I, because as a book, you know, it's still you writing the book. And even though you know, there is a sense in which, at that point, some of these decisions were collaborative, just in terms of identifying with the authorial voice, person talking to you, yeah. it's much stronger if it's I. So he actually said I should do that, and I, I do thank him at the end of the book for letting me tell a story that is half his, mm. as though it were all mine, because he was, you know, allowed me to, to, to tell this story. And I, it is told from my point of view, so it is my version of, of our events, if you like, yeah. but I was grateful to him that, you know, he he could see that point, that it was better if it was my so, story. So when it comes round to your turn again, in the spring yeah. of 2016 <laughs> or something, what, what would you do if you had to? Would you put, uh, have you enjoyed the publishing experience? Would I you have, like to do very much. I am trying to write something else now. It's not this book, part two, um, but it's not entirely unconnected. But at the moment, I'm at the point where I don't know whether it's going to turn into a book or not, so we'll see. Ah, front row. Right at the front. Like I just wanted to ask you a bit about the effect of motherhood and parenthood. I mean, I found the book so inspiring because um, I loved your music when I was um, a young adult and uh, just to hear your story about leaving it all behind and becoming mm. a parent of three children was incredibly inspiring and to think, you know, you're still that singer-songwriter, you're not just a mum, you're not just pigeonholed, and to go back and reopen your career and re-engage with it. So, um, yeah. Well, you know, motherhood knocked me for six in a way that I didn't expect it to. And I'm sure that's not unusual, for God's sake. Um, but I was lucky enough, I think, to be able to indulge that being knocked for six. And again, I do acknowledge that in the book. I'm not remotely saying women should stay home with their children, God forbid. Um, and I'm very aware of the fact that being able to make that decision to stop my career at that point was one of sheer good fortune, given that that's what I wanted to do personally. And I hadn't realised that would be what I'd want to do. I thought, in all honesty, that I would just carry on. For a start, I thought I'd just have a baby. I didn't know I'd have twins, so that made it more difficult. <laughs> 
Um, but I just assumed I'd be really laid back, you know, and have kind of kids on the tour bus and everything. We did try. We did one does, tour yeah. where we took the girls with us, and it was. I just hated it. I just felt I couldn't do either job very well. I wasn't very good at being mum because I was busy and tired. And then at the end of the day, I'd put the girls to bed in the hotel and leave them with a nanny, rush back to the venue, put a load of makeup on, and get on stage and feel like a fraud essentially. Um, because I just thought, oh, you were singing a lullaby half an hour ago and being all mumsy, and now you're out here pretending you're a kind of... Do you know what I mean? I don't know, there's something about the kind of music that we were doing at the times where we were making dance music and the gigs we were doing were quite clubby, and it felt fraudulent to me what I was... The person I was implying I was on stage didn't feel to me honestly like the person I was at that stage in my life. You know, I was actually really happy being mumsy and being in track pants and singing wheels on the bus. <laughs> so, you know, when I then got pregnant again, I thought, you know, this is actually the perfect excuse now to just go, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> I can't. When really I was saying, I don't want to do it anymore. Um, so that was why I stopped. But I'm, you know, again, I think I was lucky to then be able to come back to it. It's the kind of career that you can put down for a few years and if you're lucky, be able to pick back up again. And I do acknowledge as well that that's not the case for most women, you know, working in jobs where you work your way a certain way up the ladder. You can't just put that career down and go drift off and be mumsy for a few years and then drift back to it. So nothing I say in the book is meant to be a sort of... Um, prescriptive version of motherhood, but it's just, <laughs> that's how it was for me. Anyone else? Oh, Another front, front door's come alive. Yeah. Oh, come to <laughs> it, it sounds as though it was tricky to sort of just be a regular mum at the school gates. I, I just wonder if you want to tell the story about George Michael, which I found absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Well, the thing about being the regular mum at the school gates was, it wasn't that tricky, because I thought most of the time, I just, that's who I was. I, I never thought anyone really knew who I was. And I do think this is something about being famous in England, which is, I've had this experience twice now, once being a bit famous at university, and then once being a bit more famous as a school mum. And the honest truth is that English people will just not mention it. <laughs> it's like, you know, your salary or anything, <laughs> like, the other things that we don't mention. It, no one ever brought it up with me. And I never, that, I never knew whether that meant they knew and thought it was really cool, or they knew and hated all my records, <laughs> so weren't going to say anything, or just didn't know, and that's what I sort of hoped, because I wanted to just be a mum with the other mums. Um, and so then there was this occasion one day when I'm waiting at the school gates, and this big Range Rover pulled up with the you know blacked out windows and everything, and the window sort of zzz, buzzed down. And this voice went, "Tracy, hi, Tracy." And George Michael leaned out, <laughs> um, and all the mums just kind of went. <laughs> 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 but even then, no one said to me, "How do you know George Michael?" <laughs> they just sort of went, "Oh." <laughs> You know, and then we went back to talking about, you know, well, what about Miss Dunphy and all that homework? <laughs> because that's English people. Just, if it's a bit embarrassing, you just don't go there. Just don't go there. This question in the middle. Yes. Uh, Where are you going? Glasses. <laughs> glasses. Hi. Oh, I just, again, 
my question follows on from others about, about being a parent. I know you're a mother of uh, teenage children, and I know that my children find me endlessly embarrassing. And I just wondered how your kids feel about you having been a pop star in the past, and are they proud of you? Or? Hmm. I... <laughs> it's, it is a good question. I honestly don't know. Um, I think they're proud as long as it doesn't ever come up. You know, as long as we can just keep it quiet, please. And please don't be embarrassing about it. Um, they are proud because when, when they compare it with the jobs their friends' parents do, then they think, well, it's more interesting than that. And so sometimes they come home saying, oh, so-and-so's really excited because her mum's got all your records. And so at that moment they think, well, there's a bit of cachet involved in this because you're sort of someone. But on the other hand, they don't want to think about it or discuss it at home. Someone said to me, you know, do your children listen to all your records? <laughs> Have you ever met any teenagers? <laughs> do you think many teenagers sit down and listen to their parents' records? They must have I heard, don't they must think have heard so. some of them. They have heard them, yeah. but in terms of sitting down and listening to them, nah. No. Nah. Thank you. Uh, they don't want that from you. You know, they want you to be mum and dad, and I think that's fair. Shout them I'm from Firenze, Italy. Ah. <laughs> we were big there once. I, he knows. I feel obliged to apologize for what happened. <laughs> of what happened in my hometown. But it's all forgotten. Yes. It's all forgotten. But it's a curiosity if you recall something of uh, the Florentine concert. Thank you. <laughs> We loved Florence, I have to say. We used to go there quite a lot. So that occasion of being chased round and mistaken for Matt Bianco was <laughs> just actually the beginning of a long, happy love affair with Florence. It got better after that. I just remember something I have to tell you. I was listening to the radio yesterday. Have you heard of a band called London Grammar? Oh, I should have done probably. It's new, no, it's, they're, they're, brand, they're brand new. I think they've got, they've got a single out just now called Strong, and it's a girl... Uh, a, Guy and a girl. I think I think I think they might, they might be a three-piece. Okay. It's a kind of strong woman's voice. And the guy was on the radio yesterday talking. Now she was called Ben. And they met at Nottingham University. <laughs> and they, he was chatting away. And I, was, I, was, I thought, God, this is so weird. This is brand new. <laughs> and they were talking. They were talking about how they just met at university. And it all happened really quickly for them. They've been signed, and they've got a they, you know, the iTunes deal and so. And I thought, God, this is really funny. Uh, what is it funny for you seeing? Things like that happen, you know, yeah. X years later. Right? Yes, when things come along. I mean, I tell you whose who's story and whose success does always make me feel like these are our little kindred spirits. It's the XX, oh, yeah, yeah. who I look at. And I mean, A, Romy looks so much like me. Yeah. I met up with her quite recently. She came to one of my book events. They're massive fans of ours as well. So she came along to one of my book events. Um, well, you keep talking. Keep going. Okay. <laughs> um, and someone took a photo of the two of us. And I got home later and I showed it to my kids and they all went, my God, she looks more like you than we do. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, she's my real daughter. <laughs> You're all adopted. Um, check, but, check the single, you'll you like it. Uh, we've probably got time for one more question. There's anyone with anything burning to ask? No? Well, yes, no, we've got one oh, more. Oh, we've got one, right, sorry. No, yeah, just very quickly, just at, the, at the beginning of the book, you mentioned John Martin Solidaire. Mm. Um, do you still listen to John Martin, and did you ever meet him? 
Yes, we did meet him a couple of times, and we came close to collaborating with him, actually, and it just never happened. Um, he came to see us play live, because I think he'd read that we'd been raving about him. In the very early days, mid-80s or so, he came to see us play live, um, and we did meet up with him, and we were trying to do a song together, but it was that awkward thing where his career, you know, was slightly in the wane, and we were more on the upsurge. So he was trying to do something where it was more in the style of what we were doing, where, of course, we wanted to do something that was like Solid Air, because we just revered John Martin, and so we couldn't quite get onto the same... It was that awkward thing when you've got artists who are just at different points in their career and they want different things from each other. So it didn't happen. Um, but Solid Air is... Yeah, it's the track, I would say. Is, I don't know why, but it's just still up there as one of the most important tracks in my life. Not just because it was the first thing that Ben put on when we first met, but it is partly that as well. Um, but yeah, it's key. Uh, I'm going to finish with a, uh, with a sneaky fan question. Go. Which is, everything yes. but the girl have obviously never split up. You no. say in the book, mm. you use lots of words like parked and resting <laughs> and all these kind of things. Mm. And I noticed on Ben's website that he's recently returned to playing live and songwriting and stuff. So I'm just going to ask the question. Is there any chance, <laughs> at some point in the future, that the little graph, which has been going like that? Well, there is, but only as much as there's always been. And, and it is true what I've, what I've said before, that we've never said we've stopped forever. But both of us keep coming up with other things we want to do. Um, the fact that Ben's, you know, at the point where he's about to do some solo gigs and record a solo album, which I think is really important and is something he really should be doing because it's something he's wanted to do for a long time. You know, he was about to embark on a solo career when we got together and, you know, at, at that point he had to set aside some of his creative output and become more the guitar player in the band and I took over most of the singing and you know, whilst that worked really well, for him that was a sacrifice of certain things yeah. and it's taken him all these years to get that back. So I think it's important that that's the next thing he's doing. So your next book, 2016 then, yeah. Everything But The Go Reunion in 2018? Yeah, how old will I be then? Uh, God, that's ages away. We're out of time, sadly. <laughs> thank uh, you. Thank you so much for coming. It's great to see you. Uh, uh, Wish, okay. wish, wish a minute. Uh, an so, as I was saying, it's good to see a full uh, Edinburgh Festival audience. Trace is now going to be signing copies of the book uh, next door in the signing tent. Thank you so much for your questions. Thanks for coming up. Thanks especially to Tracy Thorne. Thank you. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.